and we've all been programmed to be audience. Like you go NPC all day and you come home and then you be audience. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a minute, this, this is our one life? Is it, <laughs> this is what we're, this, like, we, we don't believe in reincarnation, so we get, we get this one shot and, and we spend it NPC and audience? Come on, guys, let's play. You go NPC all day, then you come home and be audience. How many of us feel this way? How many of us feel that we spend our day, whether in school or at work, sitting down and shutting up so that we can get home, sit down and shut up, and watch someone else live through a screen? Not only that, but I can see that the more I take in things like social media, the more I feel that whatever I was going to do instead doesn't matter anyway. It's never going to live up to the thing that I am consuming, so why even try anymore? Today I want to talk about something called the agency gap. I'm going through a book called The Vanishing American Adult, and in it Ben Sass talks about that given that we are going into a time of instability, or not necessarily even instability, but we're just going into a time where one type of work is being replaced by a different type of work, that is, the idea of having one job for your whole life is being replaced by having a lot of jobs for a period of time that that is or will become likely the norm. That personal agency, that personal ownership, and this feeling that you can affect change, that you can affect where your life goes, that a young person today will need slightly more than their parents did. They might need more than their grandparents did. And at the same time, a young person today is more compliant, is been trained for years, day in and day out, to be compliant. And kids who actually have energy are drugged. That is where we are. So there's a gap. There's a gap of agency. We're going into a world where you need more agency than even people before you did. And you have less because you've been trained to have less. So first I want to define what personal agency is. This is from ScienceDirect.com. Self-efficacy beliefs regulate human functioning through their impact on cognitive, motivational, emotional, and choice processes. They determine whether people think pessimistically or optimistically and in self-enhancing or debilitating ways. Efficacy beliefs play a central role in the self-regulation of motivation through goal challenges and outcome expectations. Whether people act on the outcomes they expect prospective performances to produce depends on their beliefs about whether or not they can produce those performances. It is partly on the basis of efficacy beliefs that people choose what challenges to undertake, how much effort to expend in the endeavor, how long to persevere in the face of obstacles and failure, and whether failures are motivating or demoralizing. Efficacy beliefs play a key role in shaping the courses lives take by influencing the types of activities people choose to enter. By choosing their environments, people can have a hand in what they become. People's beliefs and their coping capability also play a pivotal role in the self-regulation of effective states. Efficacy beliefs influence how potential threats are perceived and processed. If people believe they can manage threats, they are not distressed by them. 
but if they believe they cannot control potential threats, they experience high anxiety. Believing they cannot deal with threats impairs their functioning. Many human distresses result from failures of thought control. It is not the sheer frequency of disturbing thoughts, but the perceived inability to turn them off that is the major source of distress. Similarly, in obsessional disorders, it is not the ruminations per se, but the perceived inefficacy to stop them that is disturbing. Phobics display high anxiety and physiological stress to threats they believe they cannot control. After their perceived efficacy is raised to the maximal level by guided mastery experiences, they can manage those same threats. So efficacy, the idea that you have some power over what your life becomes, that when you don't have that, everything stresses you out. Everything causes anxiety. I think about my personal struggles with depression and anxiety and, and how many of them are due to this kind of panic that, uh, you know, that I'm trapped or that I can't do anything about what is about to happen or what is happening, that this like feeling of panic comes from a lack of personal agency, that you do not know, you have not proved the hard way that you can handle more than you think. And that once you are in a situation, once I am in a situation where I have not proved to myself just how much I can handle by being tested, then everything causes anxiety. So I want to now go into a piece by John Taylor Gatto. He was a school teacher for 30 years. He won a bunch of awards. The thing I'm going to read here is a speech he gave when receiving an award. Uh, in teaching. He taught for 30 years, but then went on to uh, leave education and write some books about critiquing modern education and what it does to students. Quote, schools are intended to produce formulaic human beings whose behavior can be predicted and controlled. To a very great extent, schools succeed in doing this, but our society is disintegrating and in such a society, the only successful people are self-reliant, confident, and individualistic because the community life which once protected the dependent and the weak is dead. The products of schooling are, as I've said, irrelevant. Well-schooled people are irrelevant. They can sell film and razor blades, push paper and talk on telephones, or sit mindlessly behind a flickering computer terminal. But as human beings, they are useless. Useless to others and useless to themselves. The daily misery around us is, I think in large measure, caused by the fact, as Paul Goodman put it 30 years ago, that we force children to grow up absurd. Any reform in schooling has to deal with its absurdities. It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to sit in confinement with people of exactly the same age in social class. That system effectively cuts you off from the immense diversity of life and the synergy of variety. Indeed, it cuts you off from your own past and future, scaling you to a continuous present, much the same way the television does. It is absurd and anti-life to be a part of a system that compels you to listen to a stranger reading poetry, 
when you want to learn to construct buildings, or to sit with a stranger discussing the construction of buildings when you want to read poetry. It is absurd in anti-life to move from cell to cell at the sound of a gong for every day of your natural youth in an institution that allows you no privacy and even follows you into the sanctuary of your home, demanding you do its homework. Out of the 168 hours in each week, my children sleep 56. That leaves them 112 hours a week, out of which to fashion a self. My children watch 55 hours of television a week, according to recent reports. That leaves them 57 hours a week in which to grow up. My children attend school 30 hours a week, use about 6 hours getting ready, going, and coming home, and spend an average of 7 hours a week doing homework, a total of 45 hours. During that time, they are under constant surveillance, they have no private time or private space, and are disciplined if they try to assert individuality and the use of time or space. That leaves 12 hours a week, out of which to create a unique consciousness. Of course, my kids eat, and that takes some time, not much because they've lost the tradition of family dining. But if we allot three hours a week to evening meals, we arrive at a net amount of private time for each child of nine hours per week. It's not enough. Two institutions at present control our children's lives, television and schooling, in that order. Both of them reduce the real world of wisdom, fortitude, temperance, and justice to a never-ending non-stop abstraction. In centuries past, the time of a child in adolescence would be occupied in real work, real charity, real adventures, and the realistic search for mentors who might teach you what you really wanted to learn. A great deal of time was spent in community pursuits, practicing affection, meeting and studying every level of the community, learning how to make a home, and dozens of other tasks necessary to become a whole man or woman. Okay, at this point you might say, this is just a boomer saying, it ain't like it used to be. But that key word is abstractions. How much of our anxiety is caused by the feeling that our life isn't real? That our life is some kind of weird abstraction that we never leave? That, I believe, is the key to opening up to what he had to say. Children and old people are pinned up and locked away from the business of the world to a degree without precedent. Nobody talks to them anymore. And without children and old people mixing in daily life, a community has no future and no past, only a continuous present. In fact, the name community hardly applies to the way we interact with each other. We live in networks, not community. And everyone I know is lonely because of that. Now, this is a long piece, and it goes on to, to say many other things. I'll cut it right there. But you get his point that the much of the anxiety of the modern world is this feeling that life is an abstraction, that everything is some kind of abstraction. I think it's not a coincidence, for example, that there's a rise of this theory that we're living in a simulation. That theory as a whole only exists because people feel that life isn't real. So it's easy to blame the school system. It's easy to blame any kind of system, right? But what can really be done? I want to say a few things. The first thing is that there are a lot of very impressive young people, regardless of if they went to public school or not. I know a lot of them, and they are remarkably uh, shrewd, and I think the problem is not that young people are stupid and weak, but that they are disengaged. So first, I want to lay out a few things which I think 
could revolutionize the public schooling system just for the fun of theorizing. I doubt that all of the leaders of the boards of education or whoever runs the public school system are listening right now, so I don't know that it's of all that much practical use, but these are just a few things that I think could be of interest. First, I think that students of every grade should spend part of each day teaching people of a younger grade, since part of how you learn is to teach. So rather than homework being about the next thing that you're supposed to learn while you sit down and shut up and the person in the front tells you everything you're supposed to know, homework should be people perhaps prepping what they're going to teach the next day to students younger than them. It's obviously necessary for students to continue learning, but it should be part learning, part teaching. Also, I think that school days should get shorter the higher the grade is. So the higher the grade, the shorter the schooling. This again implies that agency should grow as age increases. The older you get, the more agency, the more self-reliance you should have. To go to school every single day for 12 years, to sit down and shut up and just play along every day for 12 years, then to leave, go to college, and do the same thing for four more years, and then to come out of college into the chaos that is today, is one hell of a culture shock. If students could be eased into a growing of agency, of responsibility, that would be a good thing. I think none of this would be as good as just straight-up homeschooling. Of course, I'm biased because I was homeschooled. But it does give me a great deal of self-ownership that I have never fit in, that I have never been in the mold, that I've always been an oddity. And so I feel more at home doing a thing no one around me is doing, and I am very grateful for that. And if we are going into a time where people have to have multiple jobs, where people have to have side hustles, where people have to think outside the box continuously, then anything which escalates personal agency is a plus. For me, as some of you might know, because I put it in one of the pieces, I have decided to buy something called the Light Phone, which is a really sophisticated dumb phone. It was about $400, and I'm not rich, so that was a big decision when I pondered over for a very long time. But the simple reason I did it is that I could tell that I was getting lazier and that the more lazy I got, the more I didn't like who I was. I got more anxious and again I felt more like a spectator. Now you might think, okay, let's say I did get off social media. What is this grand thing you think I'm gonna do? What is so important that I'm supposed to be doing with my time if not on social media, if not to consume? And I think about that for my personal life. Oh, I'm not gonna read a book. I'm not gonna do some other more constructive thing. You know why? Because I can't see the value in it anymore. I don't even know how to value my actual life. I just compare it to something that is far more glamorous and see my own life as insignificant. I don't even know how to value my actual life. So yeah, I can't really engage in it. I can't really read the book. I can't really take myself seriously. I can't even deal with that awkward feeling that maybe my life is not something to be escaped. 
Maybe your actual life is not something to be escaped. What would have to change about the way I see the world in order that I might deliberately, by choice, re-engage with my actual life? And lastly is this. As any of you who know me personally know, I've gone through a lot of personal upheaval lately. But I will say this. Swinging for something, really, really taking a big swing, whether it be marriage or getting a job, whatever it is, taking a big swing and just absolutely falling on your face is better than not being on the field. I always heard that growing up, like, oh, trying and failing is better than not trying, but I never believed those people. I thought they were lying. I thought what they were really doing was covering up for the fact that maybe they made the wrong choice. And so it was easier to say, oh yeah, it's better to just try something and fail than to not try. Because it, it was the thing they did. So they were just telling me to do it because they did it. But that is not the case. When things go wrong, it hurts. And when things hurt, you learn. It is better, genuinely better, to take a big swing and fail than to not step on the field. If you're young and hearing this, get a crappy job, ask the girl out, take a big swing, let it fall apart, let it hurt, learn from the pain. Because every time this cycle continues, you realize that you could have more agency than you ever thought possible, that there is more in you than you knew that all it needed was to be tested, and that bad days don't determine the outcome of your life, that they can be survived, that you can push through them, and that as we enter a time of relative instability, that you can handle it, that you can succeed through it, that you have what it takes. But if you do not test yourself, if you do not take a big swing, over and over again, then you will be relegated to NPC and audience. What would it take for you to be on the field? What would it take for you to actually play? What would it take for you to think that your life was something not to throw away? <laughs>